Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to a special, and this is a special edition of the On The Tape Podcast. Guy Adami, always joined by Dan Nathan. But today, a special guest, a man that needs no introduction, Mike Novogratz, CEO of Galaxy. Last time we spoke was on a stage at iConnections. It was January of this year. I think Bitcoin was probably, what, 16,000, 17,000 or so-ish. Obviously, we're going to talk about crypto, but so much has changed in the macro environment since then. So from 30,000 feet, all the things that have transpired, a stock market that seemingly goes up every day. What are your thoughts on things today as we sit here in December? You're looking back, there's two things that surprised everyone. One is how fast inflation came down. And the second is the overall resilience of the economy. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to take those backwards. I think we're going to look back 15 years from now and we'll say, wait a minute, why was the economy so resilient? When Donald Trump took office, he increased federal spending, one of the largest increases in in in, in history. We went from three, $3 trillion to $3.9 trillion of federal spending. And then COVID happened and he put his foot on the gas. And then Biden came in. He said, hey, it's my party too. Mm-hmm. And between those two presidents, who I think will go down as the two worst presidents in fiscal history, mm-hmm. we've taken federal spending as a percentage of GDP from 20% to 25%. And we've normalized it at 25%, right? Next year's budget is 25%. Mm-hmm. The following year's budget is 25%. I worked at the White House in 1984. I was a GS4 working for David Stockman. Tells how fucking old I am. <laughs> and I learned real quickly, federal government gets to spend 20%. And we try to tax 20. We normally don't. We did in 1999, Bill Clinton, shout out. But those are the rules. And they changed the rules. And so since you've been investing, since I've been investing, our models of how the economy works, our algorithmic models Mm -hmm. are intuitive, and the models that the economists use were based on a 20% federal spending. And so I think happened is 
when you give people that much extra cash, government spending is a lot less sensitive to interest rate than non-government spending. Once you decide you're going to build infrastructure, you don't care what the interest rates are. Someone else is paying for it. And so I think we've all underestimated the power of all that money. Fair enough. So this is something that I think you might have said to me, and if you didn't apologize, but government spending, that's fine if tax receipts are going up. But if you're basically borrowing and spending in terms of debt to GDP, we're at historic levels. And I think you might have said to me that no developed economy in the history of mankind has been able to recover from somewhere north of 130% or so of debt to GDP. And we are fast approaching, if not through those levels. Thoughts on that? Ken Rogoff wrote a real good book on this. Ray Dalio's talked about it a lot. Ray called it a beautiful deleveraging. Mm -hmm. We kind of had a shot and I think we blew it. And so now if you look with 5%, 6%, 7% rates, as you start funding the deficit, originally it doesn't feel like it hurts so much because the way they account for it is what's your average coupon of government. And we went so many years issuing under mm -hmm. 1% coupons. Mm -hmm. As those roll off and you replace them with 5 and 6% coupons, we're going to have a trillion dollars in debt service. Again, a trillion dollars is roughly 4% of GDP. That used to be the max deficit we were allowed to run. Right. It's just debt service. And so at one point it crowds out or you debase your currency. And so one reason I love gold, I still love silver, even though it kicked me in the teeth in the last mm -hmm. few weeks. Uh, I still love Bitcoin is the proxies of hard assets. It's why equities outperform, right? When you're debasing your currency, assets go higher. And so I don't see how we get out of this trap. So you're a student of history. I know that as well. And, and I would submit history is repeating itself in a number of different ways, not least of which some of the rhetoric around Russia, Ukraine, and our seemingly the politicization of it. People do not now want to fund this war the same way in 1938, 39, people were saying it's not a big deal. Germany, Poland, it's over there. Let them do their thing. Obviously, that proved to be a disaster. With that said, you also have this China-Taiwan thing. What's going on in terms of China's economy is scary to me because you back them in a corner, they're liable to do certain things. So the geopolitical risk is not going away anytime soon. How does that factor into any of the things we're talking about? Yeah, listen, in, in some ways, I was talking to a bunch of young kids and I was like, when I graduated college, 87, my friends all got to Wall Street. We had 20 of the best years in the planet ahead of us with this huge tailwind of globalization, the unification mm -hmm. of the world in lots of ways through technology, through a shared political ideology of really individual first, right? It was Reagan and Thatcher. That, that ideology took over the world, a consumer choice. I remember someone wrote the book, The End of History. And then we woke up. This generation is looking at such a different outlook. You know, China right now in this property quicksand, they might get out of it. It's going to take a hell of a lot of stimulus. It's going to take big deficits. Xi is probably more vulnerable than he's been in a long time. I think we as a country, both Dems and Republicans, made a tremendous error of declaring war on China. And we really have declared war on China. I spent seven years of my life in Hong Kong. I've been to China an immense amount of times. I have tons of friends from the investing world and non-investing world. They were cheating fair and square. They were mm -hmm. cheating. I mean, clearly they were cheating. They were cheating on IP. They were cheating on a lot of things. We should have smacked them with a ruler across the fingers and said, stop goddamn cheating, but not declared them the enemy. Mm -hmm. I mean, now you've got this fanaticism. Mm -hmm. These guys, they're all spies there. And so- a, that's not good for the world. B, it's not good for peace. 
See, it leaves us more nervous than we need to be. I don't believe China has this diabolical plan to take over the US. I think they want to compete. I think they want to be as wealthy per capita as we are, long way from it. And, but we're all going to be nervous about them for a while. And that politics plays right now. The only thing Democrats and Republicans can agree on is fuck China. Right. Uh, and that's not great. Sorry for cursing. No, you're fine. So what do you think their aspirations, if any, are in terms of Taiwan? And when you have an unemployment rate, a youth unemployment rate, it's probably approaching 30%. History suggests the way you get yourselves yeah. out of these things is to start something. Yeah, I think they're smart enough to know. And he even said it when he came over here to calm everyone mm -hmm. down. In the long run, Taiwan will be part of China, but we're not going to go in there militarily and take them. They took Hong Kong very peacefully. Yeah. There were a few protests. I actually went over there and protested, which was probably a, a mistake because they raided our offices a few weeks later. <laughs> I lived in Hong Kong. It hurt me to see like my friends having their, their country shifted, but it did. And that was the Chinese deal. I think that's how Taiwan will in, in the long run be part of China. I was living there. I had a friend in Beijing. He came with these two, you know, probably 28-year-old woman who had been there in Tiananmen Square. They were the liberal protesters. And when I mentioned, well, yeah, Taiwan should be its own country, of course, I could have insulted their mother, their mm -hmm. grandmother, and their best friend at the same time. They were furious. And these were like the most liberal people you could find in China. They were like, they were like, oh, you know, we should just take Texas from you. Mm -hmm. and I was like, yeah, you can have Texas. <laughs> and so it goes so deep. That's not going to change. Yeah. Taiwan will be part of China at one point. My guess is it happens peacefully. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that. I mean, I have friends who lived in Hong Kong expats like you were there and a lot of them were out there. And I think at the time it was like, you know, this is a couple of years ago, right? They had the umbrella thing. That was the thing, you know, and they were yeah. wearing masks, which was kind of made it in, in with all the surveillance and, and the like. I think a lot of them, you know, were probably not doing the right things. But a lot of them would say that their friends on the mainland would say, well, what are you guys out there in the streets protesting? You know what I mean? Like it, to them, like if you're in Shanghai or you're in yeah, you got a great, uh, Beijing, you got a great life. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, they just, that's what they would look at it. So I think that's kind of interesting. Let's take a step back, Mike, to um, that conversation you had with Guy in uh, January of this year and, and think about like Guy and I were just talking about it before we turned the mics on. It's like the pessimism. There was thousands of investors, right? Both allocators and investors at that conference. And I remember it was still a very pessimistic tone, despite the fact that the stock market had come off the mat. I think we're at least 10% off of the October lows at that point. It really seemed like, you know, one of those bear market rallies that we had seen over the course of 2022 on a couple of occasions, but it kept on going. So when you go back to just um, the expectations for a recession in 2023, that's what was priced in really late last year. And now when you think of it, the flip side, here we are, you know, the S&P is about to make a new all-time high. You know, we have yields down significantly from where they were two months ago, but they're trading right where they were on the 10-year back in August. What in your mind has changed so dramatically other than sentiment right now? Um, because I think a lot of the things that we're probably worried about, a global growth slowdown and the like, it doesn't feel great in China. If you look at the expectations there and you think of like how the world is just awash with debt. Yeah, rates are lower, but they're where they were four months ago. So if you go back that to that year ago, the world was all worried about inflation. Nuri Robini wrote a book. Uh, he sent me a copy. I read the Ford, um, <laughs> but I spoke to him about it where he looked at structural inflation that was coming. And we started with deglobalization. We're going to need to have two supply chains. And that's a big deal, right? This idea of building up more military because we're worried about China is a big deal. The idea of global warming and the greening of the world, the amount of infrastructure that's going to need to be built, which is all additional spend. And so when you put it together, there were these structural reasons for inflation that he thought would persist. It was staggering 
the amount of liquidity that was put into the system. And so you didn't understand where that would end. And so 5%, 6%, 8%. And we were looking at debt to GDP up to 120, 130%. And that becomes a self-fulfilling cycle mm-hmm. often. You see what happens in Turkey or in Venezuela or in so many places where confidence breaks. And so I think there was a worry that it would take longer for inflation to come down. And the surprise of the year has been how fast it's come down, right? Oil prices are back to, you know, 70 odd dollars a barrel. The supply chain issues got fixed. Yeah. Quickly. And, th- and then we had, uh, obviously, liquidity pumped in the system in the spring, the regional banking crisis, and then all of that legislation. I think legislation. people are way underestimating how important it We've was. talked about it a number of times. The yeah. best thing that happened to the market this year, in Silicon retrospect, Valley. was Silicon Valley Bank. They pumped an immense amount of liquidity yeah. in, and they re-underwrote the put. Yeah. yeah. I mean, our banking system is kind of crazy now. The government guarantees all the deposits, and then they guarantee the mortgages. Hmm. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> so why, why do we even have these banks? Yeah. So when, when when you go back to the IRA and the CHIPS Act, has that even hit the economy? Is that more just of like the smart money knows that it's out there, it's lurking, it, it serves almost as a put for the economy also? Is that part of it when you think of just a lot of this fiscal stimulus? It's hard to get into a real recession without the retail market falling apart. Mm-hmm. So autos. Mm-hmm. Right. Autos just did a strike in a wage deal. They were able to get such a good wage deal because there's a lot of demand for new cars. Mm-hmm. Right. Used cars price. One of the, we, we went years without enough new cars and people want cars. So autos aren't going to a recession. Housing, the biggest employer on the margin that creates recessions is housing, is construction. Mm-hmm. And you saw housing starts, I think it was today, mm-hmm. booming. But post 08, we had a huge deficit of housing that we still have. We have a deficit of public housing, but an overall deficit of housing. And so the industries that might fire a lot of people aren't. And so it's hard to see a big recession without unemployment spiking. Mm-hmm. And unemployment will go up small. It has and bounces around, mm-hmm. but we're still what used to be considered full employment or very tight employment. Also the demographics, people getting older, they stop working. It's hard to see a monster recession. And I think we were used to, this is a little bit back to, we all have these algorithms. We're younger. Our algorithms were the cycle, boom, we're going to imp- unemployment back to 8%. They're cutting rates. Like that's not happening. And so the surprise recently is the Fed said, huh, well, if Core PC really is heading to 2%, and it looks like it is pretty quickly. Five and a quarter percent rates, pretty damn restrictive. We don't, don't need 3% sense. real rates. So rates will probably come down over the next 12 to 18 months to 3%. Not to 1% again, but to 3%. Yield curve probably goes positive. I get you 10 years, probably where they are today. Because <laughs> you know? yeah. I don't think there's a lot of value yeah. in the long end of the curve because there's so much supply coming. I think next year, the trade of the year next year will be the steepener. But everyone's been saying that this year. So when, when the Fed does start cutting, I think what the markets are pricing right now, at least equity markets, that it's going to be this, you know, we're pricing in a no landing for all intents and purposes, <laughs> yeah. right? And you look at, and, you know, like just... Uh, essentially, right, the dot plot is saying three cuts next year. And so in my career, I started in the business in 1997, okay? And when the Fed started cutting, there was obviously that euphoria. You've seen all the data when they pause, right? But that period between when they pause and when they cut, good for stocks, all right? 
when they start cutting, it's a little slow and then they do it all at once. And then we've had in two instances, the S&P get cut in half and from the highs in 2000, the highs in 2007, the yield curve inverted in 2019. The economy was starting to slow. We had this black swan event, but the Fed again went to zero after they were trying to normalize in 2018. We dropped 35%. We know the fiscal, the monetary. So my point is, is like, what are people not seeing about the potential for 2024 that once the Fed starts to cut because they want to do a victory lap or they've gotten to where they want to be with inflation. But isn't there the chance that things start to kind of accelerate to the downsides as it relates to the economy? And I'm thinking about China a little bit, right? China's in the throes of this deflationary spiral. Growth is at the lowest it's ever been for them. Is there the potential for that? I'm kind of leading the witness here a little bit. Yeah, well, listen, we, we, we could also have an environment that none of us have really gotten comfortable with where inflation comes down because of this deflationary impulse in China. Mm-hmm. A lot of reasons because of AI and growth kicks along. Just getting to 3% is 225 basis points of rate cuts. Yeah. Now, maybe they go 50s and they do four times. Maybe they go 25s, mm-hmm. they go 11 times, 50s and 25s. But they're a long way from a neutral rate, right? They're 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 very restrictive if you believe inflation is heading to 2%, right? So real rates are as high as they've been mm-hmm. literally since I can remember. If you want to do something fun, take out your Reuters or your Bloomberg mm-hmm. or whatever system you use and look at the 230s yield curve over the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. And what you'll see is these giant mountains and valleys and mountains in valleys. And what it tells you is once the yield curve starts steepening, it steepens 200 basis points. And that almost always comes from the front end rallying, right? And so if you look at two thirties right now at negative 40, right, that'll go to 140 next year at one point. So there's 180 basis points in that trade. It's negative carry. Every macro hedge fund I know, including myself, has been in it too early. And mm-hmm, it's been mm-hmm. literally our Waterloo this year. Macro funds didn't have a great year. A lot of it is because yield curve. of this stuff. Yeah. It normally really starts working the moment they start cutting because they don't cut once. They cut multiple times and it just keeps going. And so I think next year it's the trade. I think the Fed will cut and I think they'll cut more than's priced into the dot plot, certainly, mm-hmm. and maybe what's priced into, into the market. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. 
SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank NA, NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Let's get into your world a little. Indulge me for a second. You were a wrestler, so you win, lose based on your ability on the mat, right? Team sports a little bit different. Goaltender is tasked with stopping the puck. The forwards are tasked with scoring the goals. Defensemen somewhere in between the two. The problem obviously occurs when people forget what their jobs are and try to do other people's jobs. There's a reason why I'm mentioning this, because... I believe that's where we've gotten globally with central banks. I mean, recently, think about what's going on in Argentina. Their runaway inflation, new guy comes in, devalue the currency by 50%. I mean, across the globe, Bank of Japan is staying with negative rates. It's interesting to me that central banks, I think, were the impetus, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, for the creation of Bitcoin in the first place. I think somebody saw central banks running amok. And they were going to do create something to sort of offset that or combat that. You mentioned gold. In 2022, central banks bought, I think, 1,131 tons of gold for about $71 billion, a record. They're on pace to do it again this year, which is coming to an end. My view all along is that central banks are hedging their ineptitude. You mentioned gold earlier. Let's get into it. You know, what's going on in the currency markets, the gold market? And then talk to me about Bitcoin, because I don't think it's coincidental that Bitcoin has gotten off the mat in a meaningful way. Yeah, so you're being a little too lenient, the unholy alliance between central bankers and the governments, mm-hmm. right? Central bankers often do the government's bidding. And I remember during the Obama administration when the Tea Party showed up and said, uh-uh, no more spending, no more spending. We actually needed a fiscal impetus and the economy couldn't get off its 2%, 2%. And so I remember talking to the Fed, talking to Dudley, talk. they were like, we have to carry all the water right now because the government's not doing their, their side. Now it's the exact opposite. The government's spending like they're drunken sailors and the central banks, if they were really tough, they said, we're not funding it. Right. They're, they're in this unholy alliance. And so I call it economic stewardship. I always say Bitcoin is a report card on good economic stewardship. Mm-hmm. If we took our spending from 25% to 20% and our deficit from 6% to zero, Bitcoin would be lower, not higher. You know? Yeah, I agree like, with that. And so, and gold would be lower, not higher. And so I don't see our government, the European governments, almost any government getting away from what I call populism. This And, and Satoshi saw that when he wrote the Bitcoin white paper. Mm-hmm. The white paper was literally a, like a cure t- to populism. He said, I don't trust these guys with our currency anymore. I don't trust these guys. And that's what mm-hmm. the core of Bitcoin is. It's a social construct between two people that says, I'm going to put my hard-earned savings in this system, this community of people who are governed by this constitution in a fixed supply currency. So is it too simplistic to say that if you're bullish of Bitcoin, which you clearly are, you almost by definition have to be bearish of the outcomes of these central banks and they're in large part bearish on the underlying economies or is that sort of nuanced? Yes, it gets more nuanced. So yes, if you're bullish on Bitcoin, you don't believe these guys are going to get their shit together. Right. Often, Spending is good until it's not. When I first got into the markets, I was an emerging market guy. And it was fascinating to me that in the emerging markets, if you had governments that misbehaved, 
markets would punish them. Their currencies would devalue and their yield curves would get steep as can be. And then they'd have to come begging to the IMF. There was a direct correlation between fiscal responsibility and the shape of the yield curve. But in the developed markets, there was no correlation between fiscal responsibility and the shape of the yield curve. And what were developed markets, the UK gilt market, the, the bund market, JG, any of the big economies. And so I was always like, wait a minute. So why would a politician be responsible? There's a thing called the Minsky moment mm -hmm. there where basically where confidence breaks and you don't know where it is, but by the time you hit it, it's too late. There was a great scene in The Right Stuff. Sam Shepard played Jaeger and he's flying. He said, there's a demon that lives out there. And one time he like passed out when he was going Mach 2 and he's like, I think I might've just found that demon, <laughs> right? This is a little bit where we're pushing. Argentina found it. Yeah. Turkey found it. I mean, look at, you know, Erdogan was a complete populist ass administrator, took over the central bank and the central government. And next thing you know, they got 100% inflation. And who suffers? Not the rich guys. It's the middle class, the working class who are like, oh, my whole life I try to save money. It's gone. That doesn't mean stock markets can't do well. Mm hmm right? Until confidence breaks. And we saw it in the UK break for a second and then come back. And in the US, it hasn't yet. Let's go back to gold quickly because you mentioned you got smoked in silver. I'm pretty sure I know when it probably transpired. But as I mentioned earlier, central banks have been hedging their own ineptitude by buying gold. China continues to do it hand over fist. Are you surprised that gold isn't... Again, if you told me everything that would transpire over the last year and said, what's the price of gold? I would have said north of 3000 yeah. Easy. We're not there, clearly. Thoughts on gold? Yeah. So when I think of Bitcoin and gold, I think of basically very similar bets. There's a macro backdrop and there's an adoption backdrop, right? So in Bitcoin, why it's so exciting, and I have a lot more Bitcoin than I do gold, mm -hmm. certainly vol adjusted, I have 10 times as much. <laughs> it's such a new asset and it's like a virus that's just starting to spread right? The fact that Larry Fink got orange pilled and believes in it is the single biggest thing that happened for it this year, just because he has such clout. BlackRock touches so many places, right? We're going to compete against them in the ETF. But think about it. Now we've got Invesco with us, BlackRock, Wisdom Tree, Fidelity. Pretty soon you're going to have nine sales forces selling the Bitcoin story. So the adoption of this idea that Bitcoin is a store of value is going straight up. Gold's been around for 3,000 more, more years, right? And so people who want to buy it can buy it. It's easy to buy, but there's no one proselytizing. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to go up because central banks are buying it and some professional investors are going to say, hmm, why did it have that big reversal? It took out you know, the all-time high. It was a Sunday night. I was sitting in Jamaica had the wrong phone with me and mm -hmm. I just saw the flash and I was like, and I told my guys, I was like, guys, my, my pod, I have a podcast and we always give the guest an ounce of gold for his best idea at the end. And he gets all excited because very few people own an ounce of gold. Right. And I was like, and my buddy bought like 30 of them for our first 30 podcasts. And I said, we better buy more because it's going to be $3,000, not 2,000. <laughs> I think I jinxed every gold <laughs> investor because by the time I got back to the U.S., it was 4% lower. It and was, I think that was just stops. CPA's yeah. got too long. It's going to consolidate. We're going to get above 2,000. We'll be 3,000 this time next year. I, I agree with that. So you mentioned Larry Fink. The polar opposite is Jamie Dimon. And he's dug in his heels in terms of you're on one side of the equation. I mean, he's well, clearly on the other. So, and I'm not looking at It's yeah, not indictment. So, it's just a, It's just sure. an observation. So me, you know, what I would say to Jamie Dimon and Elizabeth Warren and Charlie Munger, God rest his soul, and Warren Buffett, is I can line up Stan Druckenmiller, now Larry Fink, Bill Miller, Pete Brigger, Mickey Melker, mm -hmm. Jeff Yaz from Susquehanna. I can, I can 
line up 50 world-class investors, more than 50, who think Bitcoin is a store of value. So it is supreme arrogance on Elizabeth's part or Jamie's part. And Jamie should be a little embarrassed being put in the same bucket as Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. That, oh, they know better. They know what value is, but, but Stan doesn't. I don't. You don't. I'm like, who in the hell do they think they are? Honestly, there's no value. There's value because people think there's value. Mm -hmm. That's the social construct. It would be like them saying, well, there's no value in gold either. You don't have to invest in it. No one's forcing you to. That's the great part about Bitcoin. No one's forcing anyone to take anything in Bitcoin. And so I find it arrogant. Jamie must have an angle because he's a really shrewd and smart guy, right? He's got a big blockchain of his own and a big coin of his own. JP Morgan coin does a tremendous amount of transactions. And so this is a pandering to Elizabeth Warren is my best bet. And the crypto is like being in her bonnet. Right. It makes no sense it's to be in her bonnet. It's the one thing as a, as a guy who's on the center left and at times progressive, I haven't been able to figure out why Elizabeth hates crypto. Well, what do you think other than the store value argument is probably the most bullish, like, underpinning of Bitcoin right now. You, you've been, again, you've been coming on Fast Money. I think you started coming on in 2016 and, and laying out- We, we got to get a new spokesman. <laughs> no, no, no. No, but you know what? I, I'll tell you this. A lot of the folks with all the laser eyes and the this and that or whatever, they've all gone away. You know what I mean? So it's really nice to see Bitcoin, I think, at 43,000 or wherever it is right now without all the nonsense that we saw on Twitter and the like here. And I think you've been very consistent and you've been building a business the whole way to support something that you believe, a belief system. You you could have built, um, a, you know, you know, a business in and around trading commodities or, 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 you know, like macro assets, like other than digital assets. That was what you knew for most of your career. So, what is something that, like, like you believe that most of the other people who don't own Bitcoin right now believe? Yeah. So, what I think people miss, and I talked a lot about this in 2017 when we had our first mania, is that crypto was really the first ever global speculative mania. We never had a global market. Mm -hmm. You had a couple stocks that were traded globally. Mm -hmm. But if you go back and you look at the 99 internet bubble, you didn't have anyone in Korea participating, anyone in India participating, anyone in Russia participating, anyone in Africa participating. Crypto is global. And just like I'm telling the Bitcoin story on CNBC and Bloomberg and on podcasts mm -hmm. here in New York, there's someone in a village in Indonesia telling that story. Mm -hmm. And the viral nature of 8 billion people uh, getting more converts every day is really hard to stop. The other piece of this is Bitcoin exists within a movement called, you can call it crypto or decentralization. Mm -hmm. And that movement touches people in a way because it feels like it's a revolution. Mm -hmm. It's a revolution of saying, I want to cut out the middleman. I want to trust in myself. I want to have peer-to-peer -peer transaction. I want to have more efficiency, equal access. So there's this, I think progressive, but it's like a, it's half progressive, half libertarian ethos. You've seen it in the Ethereum community or in the, all these other communities that have showed up. What's been disappointing is outside of payments, not in the US, but out in Mideast, Africa, Latin America, crypto is used a lot for payments, stable coins mostly. The core next mission, the Web3 mission, the decentralized trading, the decentralized ride share, the decentralized ticketing hasn't really shown up yet. Some green shoots, it's taking longer than I thought for those projects to get scale. So it's interesting, and I know how you're going to combat what I'm about to say, because, you know, since Brian Kelly wrote his book in 2014, you will tell me that Bitcoin is up whatever percentage and it's outpaced everything. But given what you just said about it being the first global sort of investment mania, are you surprised it hasn't done better? 
you know, listen, it's had a lot of headwinds. When it went to 69,000, I remember people were like, well, and it started going down. They're like, oh, it's supposed to be an inflation hedge. I was like, dudes, you bought it at 6,000 18 months ago. Right. got to 69,000 because we were worried about inflation. Now Chairman Powell took out a big hammer and he is nailing us on the head with it. And it's supposed to go down because he's trying to stop inflation. The, the fraud of Sam Freed and mm-hmm. Alex Machinsky and the guys from Three Arrows Capital, this group of either really bad actors or people that didn't understand risk or malicious intent actors really hit us hard because if crypto was about decentralizing trust, right, taking trust away from Jamie Dimon and having it into a community, well, we had this weird hybrid of centralized crypto run by a bunch of idiots and bad actors. And so the whole space took a real kick to the teeth. But that, you know this, and that was an indictment. None of those were an indictment of Bitcoin, the theory or the truth behind it. No. It's more an indictment of people like throughout history trying to get rich on the back of whatever. But so put it in perspective, I would argue that Bitcoin, which is a trillion dollar asset after what, 14 years, might be the single greatest brand ever created. Tesla's close and Apple's up there. In 14 years, a trillion dollar brand that doesn't have a CEO, that's owned by no one, that's universally known. It's marketing genius. And if you look at Apple from its 14th year to its 30th year, I wouldn't be surprised if Bitcoin takes a bigger trajectory. Mm -hmm. Things spread virally. But it doesn't happen overnight. Do you, when you think about the business that you built with Galaxy Digital, obviously Bitcoin and a lot of the derivatives and and a lot of the, you know, and and again, there's geographic, there's a whole host of between, you know, interest in it from a retail perspective, but really what's going to happen institutionally is I think the thing that you built this business in and around. Yeah. So listen, if if we were just a Bitcoin business, Mm -hmm. we wouldn't be 465 employees, you'd be a hundred. And it would be kind of not interestingly enough for me to spend all my time on, mm-hmm. right? It would be a, owning a gold bucket shop. Mm-hmm. You'd set it up, you'd invest in it, you'd come on TV once in a while, but mm-hmm. you do a lot of other things. It's the rest of crypto. What mm-hmm. Satoshi came up with in that white paper, in order to create Bitcoin, he had to create the first private property in the digital world. Before Satoshi, there was no private property on the internet. And that's hard to kind of comprehend mm-hmm. what it means. It means that you send me a great looking picture of this guy and I could control copy and paste and send 10,000 out. So it has no value. But now because it can exist on a blockchain, it can be verified, it can have value. So from the simple example of NFTs to your healthcare records, anything transmitted digitally, it can have value. So I can transmit value. And that's the part of Satoshi's revolution that still needs to sprout. And some of that will be built on Bitcoin. Most of it won't be. It'll be built on Ethereum and Solana and some other series of chains that collectively is one giant shared database that processes and authenticates your information and holds it. And people have to believe in that. They have to learn to trust that trust machine because it is a trust Mm -hmm. machine. And so that process is taking longer I remember talking to Van Jones, who's a friend of mine. He got a $100 million grant from Jeff Bezos to spend on something cool and philanthropy. And he thought about our voting and how broken our Mm -hmm. trust in voting is. He was like, oh my God, voting on the blockchain. So he called me up and I was like, maybe we should start with voting for American Idol candidates on the block. <laughs> well, just to teach people how this right. works, because it's it's a little hocus pocus and we need to get it. It's not, if you're a scientist, you put your mind to it, you can really understand it. But to the, the average person, we've got to get it to where they believe it, but it becomes the back of the TV. No one cares about how 
data is authenticated and stored. But one thing I'd say is, you know, I'm a a very early adopter and I'm curious about a lot of these things. And I dabbled in a lot of things and NFTs and a lot of these altcoins and the like. And, you know, it's like, I know what I'm doing with technology. It was not easy. You know what I mean? And then when you think about the financialization of like some of these things that the NFTs, it was all fun because they were like bottom left, upper right for a while. But a lot of people lost a lot of money, right? So you put that together with, you know, the complication of dealing with it and then the tax implications and the regulatory stuff or whatever, it became a really complicated thing. And, and one of the reasons why I started this question by saying, you know, it's gotten back to this point with a lot of institutional backing, I think, and, and organizations like yours have really helped from a credibility standpoint to do that. But it feels like retail is not along for the ride right now. And that might be a bullish thing. I, I mean, I'm just curious. Well, I think retail is surprisingly invested and continues to invest. We have one client so we don't deal with retail direct, but we deal with the mm-hmm. uh, the institutional clients mm-hmm. that deal, deal mm-hmm. with them. And so all the platform companies, the PayPal's, the Squares, mm-hmm. those of the world who have these wallets that mm-hmm. collect money. And we do some of the trading for some of those companies. And there's one alone that between what they do with us and their two other trading counterparties buys more Bitcoin every day than is mined. So the whole mining supply is swallowed up by one app mm-hmm. in the US every day. That's the global mining supply. And so one of the reasons I think Bitcoin has a shot of parabolic is this. Mm-hmm. There are 8 billion people out there, a couple, 250 million people own a Bitcoin or some piece of a Bitcoin. As that goes a little more viral, mm-hmm. those, those small checks add up immensely. We are seeing institutions come in. We're seeing hedge funds buy with our trading desks mm-hmm. for the first time in a long time, mm-hmm. the last couple of months. I talked to one of my friends who's got a big decentralized platform. He said he saw volume double and then double again in the last two months. That's more retail online. Mm-hmm. Most institutions are still buying futures because it's simpler and they can call their prime broker and they will switch to the ETF. I think the ETF will have a dominant amount of liquidity uh, in Bitcoin and then we'll have an Ethereum one. And that'll make it so much easier for the institutional capital to come. Yeah. And the futures volumes may actually increase if there's wider ETF ownership in the way institutions obviously will use to hedge and speculate and the like. So, And, you know, it's interesting the the SEC, I think, will approve this in the next 10 days, two weeks. Jan 10th is kind of a cutoff date mm-hmm. because of the mm-hmm. lawsuit they had had with Grayscale. It looks like there's not going to be in-kind distribution, which is not the best thing. You know, it'll be more interesting from a trading perspective, but every other ETF seems to have in kind. And so Gensler's still trying to gum up the works a little bit. Well, that leads me to my final question. And I know the answer is both typically to these questions, but on the margins, regulators, friend or foe of your industry? It's been nothing close to friend. Uh, What I've experienced trying to run a company the right way has been nothing short of un-American. The SEC's treatment of us, relative to the SEC's treatment of crypto companies under Jay Clayton is night and day. There is one broker dealer that's public, it's Coinbase. There's not one other industry you can think of in America (laughs) where there's only one Mm -hmm. public market leader, right? We've been trying to go public for two years, more than two years. Normally when you're in that process, you send your answers to their questions in. Within 30 days, they give you them back. In this SEC, it's been 90 days and then your financials go stale and you start the whole process again. And this is not, they're not picking on Galaxy specific. Mm -hmm. You can talk to the people at Bullish or any of the other, Mm -hmm. eToro, any of the companies that tried to go through this process. The amount we've spent on outside legal 
legal counsel because every time someone looks into if it's FDX or Binance or whatever, they call all the players and they subpoena everything and you've got to hire lawyers and is staggering, staggering, you know, $20 million plus. So if you're a startup business, that's a huge mm -hmm. tax. The amount we spend on our audit, like we've got great auditors. We love them. We got a big four auditing firm. It's triple what it would be if we were in crypto. Triple. Like I talked to Jeffries and I talked to Michael Rubin at Fanatics. Those are big, complicated companies, much bigger than Galaxy. They spend a quarter of what you do. A half, half, a half yeah. to 40% on our audit. And so when you start adding up all these taxes, that's just not the way it's supposed to work in America. I've been in DC more than I would have ever in my entire hedge fund career. And what's interesting is this is not so partisan. Most Democrats and most Democratic leadership want to get crypto bills through. This is Elizabeth Warren. It's now Sherrod Brown in Ohio. It's Gary Gensler, who is Elizabeth's appointed mm -hmm. SEC chair. It's Lael Brainerd, a little bit in the White House. Mm -hmm. It is a tiny group of obstructionists. And they're throwing we call it FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Warren trying to talk about all this Hamas spending. And then Chainalysis, who the government hires, comes out and says, oh, that's not true. Mm -hmm. But she's already got these senators to sign this, you know, crypto's horrible bill. And so what I've learned is so many politicians, including Ms. Warren, are just disingenuous. And it's kind of heartbreaking, actually, because mm -hmm. people come often with a good intent and power manipulates them. And we end up with, you know, this broken device of government that we have. And I've never been on the brunt of it until this crypto. I served in the army. I think I'm a patriot. I, I literally go down there. And I want to like knock some people in the jaw. <laughs> well, you mentioned earlier that you need the right people to run for office. You are one of those people. So when Galaxy does become public here in the United States and that chapter is written, we hope that you run for something. We hope you come back and join us on the tape. Thanks so much. Thank Thanks, you. Michael. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.